0: Welcome to From Earning to Learning, the podcast where we talk about all things education. I'm your host, Dave Frangoson. Welcome to another episode of From Earning to Learning. I have with me tonight a very special guest, Wallace Ting. He's an international educator. He's had multiple roles in education and is a co-founder of School Rubric. Uh, Welcome, Wallace.
1: Hey, David. Glad glad to be here. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the invite.
0: Yeah, no problem. So how's everything going?
1: Well, things are going. It's the new year. So I think, you know, the break was not as much of a break as I thought it would. I think everyone has their COVID scare, COVID Christmas, family disagreements. (laughs) Nevertheless, it was really good um, to have some time. My family's pretty scattered all over the place. Uh, My sister's in California. My brother um, has been on assignment for the last three years in Singapore. And so we haven't seen him. And so we were all able to congregate in Austin, Texas, had a few COVID scares, luckily, none worse for the wear. Um, But I think, you know, 20, it's 2022. Um, There's a lot, you know, obviously a lot of kind of uncertainty going on with the start of the new year, but I think there's also still a lot of optimism and I think there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. So I'm excited.
0: Awesome. Yeah, we, uh, we dodged a couple of bullets here too, but you know, Um, so you talk about traveling and and family being scattered. Um, travel's not something new to you. You've been all over the globe. So um, one of the things I find very fascinating about you is um, you were an international educator, a director of schools. Um, how did you how did you get into international education?
1: Yeah, I mean, a little bit by luck, a little bit by researching, but I mean, it certainly wasn't part of the plan, I mean, if I could go a little bit, even backwards a little bit more, I mean, I was raised up in a suburb outside of Dallas, Texas. My parents were immigrants from Taiwan. And um, my father came to the United States to study his PhD in geophysics, ended up getting a job at Mobil before it became ExxonMobil. Um, and so that's how we ended up in Texas, right? Oil country, petroleum, all that kind of other stuff. And so as a result, he was able to get a green card, my brother and sister had already been born in Taiwan. And so I was the only one of the family that was actually born on American soil. Um, but having grown, grown up in Texas, I mean, at that time, we were one of the few minority families, one of the few Asian families. And that was kind of my life for, you know, 16, 17 years. Um, I, you know, in high school, I uh, my 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 ex-girlfriend or my girlfriend at the time, um, she was studying. She went to go study at UPenn. I went to go study at the University of Texas at Austin. I spent a summer visiting her and ended up you know, not having a job or not doing anything and ended up working at this kind of nonprofit uh, Chinatown camp counselor type thing. And that's when I visited New York City for the very first time um and i was amazed i was you know i'd never seen buildings so high i'd never seen you know this, you know i'd never seen anything like that in my you know, in my life i was i, I was amazed and i kind of committed myself that i really wanted to go to new york city and you know the the time i visited i remember it very clearly that was september 1st 2001 um so it wasn't 911 but it was you know 10 days before 911 and then obviously i went back to university and so anyway to get to the point david um i went to new york city Became a teacher after being an engineering major, um, majored in electrical engineering, and New York City opened my eyes to to different cultures, to different people, um, to different languages. I started getting the travel bug, um, started playing a bunch of tennis, and so I spent one summer um, bumming around Peru and Argentina just playing tennis, hanging out, and I stumbled upon something called international schools. And I, real, I found out that there were Americans living and working in schools overseas, and they were getting paid American dollars. <laughs> and so I was thinking to myself, you know, I mean, that's the honest, honest truth. I'd just gone through a breakup, and I was like, boy, if I could have an American salary, I could really play a lot of tennis. I could really <laughs> hang out. And so, you know, one thing led to the next. I was pushed out of New York City, too. Um, I was, you know, I was teaching remedial algebra to 18 year olds. Um, and when, while that was great, I was doing that for six years. I always wanted, I, you know, I just wanted to teach an honors pre-calc course. I wanted to teach a, a calculus course and in New York city, I know you're in New Jersey, so I don't know if it works mm-hmm. the same way, but there is something called seniority. And yeah. so, you know, when you're in a big school and you've got, you know, 20, 30 some odd teachers and you're the young person on the block. You're gonna to have to wait that out, and I just wasn't willing to wait, and I took the leap. So my first international job was in Cartagena, Colombia, where I was an AP Calculus teacher.
0: Wow! All right. So, so how many countries have you actually taught in?
1: So I was um, an AP Calculus teacher in Cartagena, Colombia. Um, after that, actually, that was my last teaching gig. So I taught in one year in Texas. I taught six years in New York City. I taught two years in Cartagena, Colombia, and then I became a principal. So I was a principal in Guatemala and a deputy head of school for three years in Guatemala City, Guatemala. I became the head of school or superintendent or director, whatever you want to call it, um, of the American school of Abuja, uh, that's in Nigeria. So I was there for three years, and then I spent my last two years international at um, Knightsbridge International School, a little IB school, in um, Bogota, Colombia. Wow! And then I came back to the states.
0: Okay, so how does the the education in all of these different countries compare? I know they're, um, you know, they're international schools, but are there different approaches, um, or is it? know the the typical like american style of education
1: yeah i mean yes and no i think you'll see a lot of variety in international schools um international schools are think of them as self-contained districts right um and so when you think about a self-contained district not only do you have teachers and regular support staff that you would find in a school, but you would also have curriculum coordinators and IT directors and superintendents, which is kind of why this, you know, you would have principals, but then you would have somebody who's kind of in charge of or overseeing the principals. And then you'd also have a school board in many cases. Um, But not all international schools are the same. Some of them um, are more slanted towards international baccalaureate. Some of them kind of use common core. Um, Some of them have different ratios of kind of host host country population versus expatriate population. Um, Some of them have a different mixture and ratio of local teachers versus expatriate teachers. Um, So there's definitely a lot of variance in international schools, and some international schools are even for-profit. So the last school I worked at in Colombia was a for-profit school. However, the school that I worked in in Abuja and uh, Guatemala were nonprofit schools.
0: Okay, so all the of all the places you've been, what would you say is your favorite country to visit?
1: Hmm. Ooh, that's tough. Um, I mean, in a professional sense or a personal sense? How about both? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say in a personal sense, it's definitely Colombia. Um, it's I mean, I picked up. I mean, I I went to Colombia when I was 27 years old. I didn't speak any Spanish at all, and I mean, I consider myself fairly fluent now in Spanish. Um, My ex-wife is from Colombia, and you know, my son is obviously half Colombian, and so I feel a connection to Colombia. It's a beautiful place. It's beautiful people. There's um, great nature, um, great things to do. Um, Very very vibrant. Very very friendly people. and there's a lot of diversity within Colombia too. It's you know it's a fairly small country. I think it's like the size of Texas. But I mean, from you know the north to the south to the middle, there's so much biodiversity. There's so much difference in even kind of the people and the slang and everything like that. There's just so much to discover. Um, professionally, for me, it was Nigeria. Um, there was just something special about Nigeria and some of the things I think that we were doing and on the precipice of doing. Um, let me give you an example. Um, we started a, um, a a partnership with the um, Ministry of Education there, and you know this school by all accounts is a you know school of privilege right so kids are your know, families are paying 25 dollars to enroll their kids at this school so obviously you need to have some you know financial wherewithal um but if i told you david about some of the public schools there i mean you talk about some of the the, the title one schools in the states well let me tell you about the schools in nigeria um there's no running water um The the buildings are dilapidated, I mean they're probably not even architecturally sound, to be honest with you, Um, you know some of the bathrooms are are literally a hole, you know, and so we started a program where we offered a couple of scholarships um, for kids and we formed a committee and we also started a program where we would start working with some of the local schools. We would, you know, not just, you know, collect and donate things for them um, and even repair in some cases, some of their infrastructure, but we also trained them. Uh, Our teachers would go there. We would have field trips. We would invite their kids there, spend a day, spend a day. And, you know, I think, I wish I had more time to, I wish I had more time to kind of see that through a little bit more I think elements of the scholarship program still exist elements of some of the things that we did. I think they probably extended it in, in some fashion or form, but um, I just felt a tremendous energy and I just felt a tremendous opportunity um, in Nigeria.
0: That's awesome. And uh, so you're still in contact with um, some of the people from Nigeria and all the places that you worked. Um, you know, so, I guess, uh, is this where you started blogging about um, your experience internationally or?
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I kind of think this gets into the genesis of school rubric, but I mean, essentially, you know, I mean, I to, I'll tell you two things, right? So the first thing is, um, you know, I'd left international education and I, you know, it was very mixed feelings for me. Um, I had been international for about 10 years, a little bit more. And on one hand, I was really ready to come home. I, you know, living overseas is really romantic and living out of a suitcase when you're 20 something, but, you know, when you're, you know, when you're late, you're, when you're late thirties and, you know, living out of a suitcase and with a kid, it it just gets a little, (laughs) it it doesn't become that fun anymore. Um, So that's number one, but, you know, let me tell you another story when, you know, when I was in Abuja in Nigeria, um, I landed, that was my first directorship, right? I had been a principal before, but it was my first directorship and, I had arrived there um, in the midst of the Ebola outbreak in 2014 in, in West Africa, and I mean, a, a, as I'm sure you probably know, um, Ebola is pretty transmissible, but it's not as transmissible as COVID, right? But it's transmissible in terms of, you know, bodily fluids, all these different things, and you know, of course, you know, people were really, really freaked out. Um, there were even a few positive cases in Nigeria, and they were doing all sorts of tracking and et cetera, et cetera. So anyway. Um, the school is on the American calendar and we were going to open, we were one of the first schools to open because the rest of the schools are in a different calendar. And I was like, we're having an Ebola outbreak, should, should we be opening the school or not? And anyway, um, the CDC, so I consulted with some folks at the embassy because the school's affiliated with the embassy, they received some technical assistance from the embassy, uh, consulted with some folks there and they, you know, they told me, hey, look, I think it's okay. We think it's okay if you open the school. You need to have some temperature checks. You need to have sanitation. You need to train your staff. You need to check for symptoms, all of these different things. But you know, it's really not the transmissible um, unless you, you know, kind of swapping bodily fluids, saliva, all this kind of other stuff. So I opened the school. I think within three or four days of the school opening, got a knock on the door. It was the Nigerian authorities and they said, what in the world are you doing with the school open? Do you not realize we're in the middle of an Ebola outbreak? And I said, well, I'm sorry. I checked with the U.S. Embassy and the CDC, and they said to me, you're in Nigeria, my friend. You know, you can U.S. Embassy me all you want, but, you know, Mm -hmm. Nigeria has jurisdiction here. So anyway, long story short, um, we ended up doing Google Classroom, and we ended up doing virtual school, um, or uh, some, some element of virtual school for about maybe two months, And that was before virtual school became a thing, right? Sure. Um, And and I was consulting with, you know, schools from like Pakistan um, about what to do during extended school closures because what would a school in the United States know about that? You know, nothing. Now everyone knows everything about it. So I guess my point, David, is, you know, I never shared that story really a lot. I never took a moment to think about what were some of the lessons learned? What were some of the things that went well? What are some of the things that went poorly? How could I contribute this to kind of a knowledge base that, you know, if something should happen in the future, and I should have done that, and I didn't. And I think that's kind of partly what school rubric is about, to kind of be this knowledge base of sharing stories, sharing experiences, um, and learning from each other.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I know I'm biased because I am a contributor and LA, but I I love the site. I think there's so many great resources and you have like every type of media out there. You have podcasts, you have blogs, you have articles, you know, so I think you did a a really fantastic job of getting that all together Um, and, you know, the the international aspect and um I, I've connected through there with people all around the world, and it's just fantastic.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty. Inter- it's a pretty interesting phenomenon, David. You know, those of us in international education, we all kind of joke around, like the world's a huge place, obviously, but international education is actually really small. Um, we all kind of know each other or know of each other, and you know, sadly, one of the one of the criticisms I think of international schools too is there is a lot of turnover. Um, you know, people are generally, you know, playing the musical chairs game every two to three years. And so by the time, you know, you kind of cycle through, you end up knowing everyone. And I I will say that that was also some of the things that kind of went into the thinking of school rubric, which is that why is international education so closed? I don't think it should be. I think that, you know, a private international school in Beijing has a lot to learn from a title one school in Florida and vice versa. Right. And so, when you'll, if you kind of look at school rubric, um, what we really try to do is try to mix and receive contributions, not only in a variety of different mediums, but from people all over the world, you know, whether they're a US public school educator or, you know, an international educator in Africa. Um, because I think good education is good education.
0: Yeah, I agree 100%. And so, like, uh, along those lines, so you had experience with virtual education back in 2014 How has remote learning evolved since then um you know like what what are some of the lessons that maybe we can take from 2014 um you know what are what are some things that we're doing well what are some things that maybe we can do a little better
1: yeah i mean i think this is a really important question um you know i i will say this from 2014 to 20 what or 20 we just turned 2022, um, so what is that seven years, eight years? Um, the amount of technological advance in eight years has been astronomical. Um, I think that if we were going to try to do pull off what we did in 2020 or 2021 with virtual education back in 2014, I think the internet would have broke. Um, <laughs> but It didn't and we were in 2020 and 2021. And so I think it's really easy for people to kind of think about the fact that there haven't necessarily been that many advances in technology or platforms or apps or online learning resources. And I think that's actually quite the opposite. I think there's tons of resources out there and I think it's changed enormously. Um, So I actually think that the biggest change for um in terms of virtual education or in terms of online learning or or the thing that i went through is not necessarily at the student end because i think we're still too raw there i think we're still figuring it out but i think it's for educators i think it's for educators in terms of um, professional development in terms of content creation um, in terms of communication with parents and with other stakeholders and with students and I think those three things have been really, really accelerated through the pandemic and over the course of the last, you know, decade or so. And I think that will eventually trickle down into more, uh, more, more things that directly affect student outcomes.
0: Yeah. So I mean, I, I teach science, and we have FET simulations and explore learning, and you know, there, there's all these things that are just much more robust now to where, you know, in a lab science, you, not that you can give students the same experience, but you know, there, there is a substitute to where they, they can get some kind of, um, familiarity with the content, even if they can't get their hands on the equipment, nothing replaces like, you know, actually working with equipment, but you're right. The advances that we've made are tremendous. Um, you know,
1: so you know, David, I mean, you know, maybe just to even like turn the, I guess maybe take this a little bit off on a tangent. Um, there's this really interesting book that was written. It's called Disrupting Class or Disrupting Education. I forgot what it was. It was by it was written by this guy Clayton Christensen. I don't know if you heard of him, but he's a Harvard economics professor. Um, and so basically, and this book was written back in like 2009 or 2010. Um, and he, you know, the premise of the book is that education largely has not been disrupted. Why, whereas other industries have actually been disrupted. You know, you think about, you know, the personal computer and, you know, the fact that the personal computer totally disrupted um, the enterprise computing space, you know, computers used to be like, you know, they used to take an entire room as an example. Um, and there's a lot of different examples. And, you know, we've spent gobs and loads of money into education, and especially ed tech, with you know, what results do we really have to show for it? So essentially the premise is he thought that education was gonna be disrupted via online education. In other words, but like for like university level education. So the whole whole idea is that, you know, something gets disrupted when, you know, there's a need for it, there's nothing better, there's no better platform for it, and then thus people have to use it, i.e. the University of X, it's an American university, somebody in India really wants an American level education, the platform sucks, maybe it's a little bit more expensive, but they're gonna use it anyway, and because there's kind of a base user case or a base user, um, it's going to get better, right? Because users will iterate; they'll tell you what they like, they'll tell you what you don't like. You know, people will be able to monitor it, developers and all these all these different types of things. And so, anyway, um, that's kind of you know. So today, when you say, "Oh, well," you know, 20, ten years ago when you said, "Oh, I, I studied my master's degree online," I think a lot of people would say you studied it online is that real is it the same degree did they give you a, a different sticker on your on your diploma and nowadays it's just kind of a, an accepted thing similar i think david i think the pandemic has created this virtual school and i think virtual school you know by and large probably sucked for, for a lot of people educators parents and students alike but i do think that there is a subset of educators parents and te- students that really liked it and I actually think there are a very there's a subset that didn't want don't want to go back Um, now they may be forced back or they may be looking for other things but I think you have the same phenomenon that's going to happen where you have this really small user base that want it that are clamoring for it it's not very good right now but because there is this user base it's going to get better And I think what we saw essentially happen over the course of, let's say, 10 to 15 years um, might happen in less time with K-12 education.
0: See, here's here's my take on it. As somebody who went through complete remote, hybrid education, and face-to-face education, right, all in the span of the past 18 months, I think completely remote, perfectly fine. Like, I can... I can take a course and I can put together something that um, you know, I can engage with students, I can communicate, give them what they need individually. Face to face, I can do the same thing. The thing that I found so challenging is the hybrid where you are engaging with both the students in front of you and the ones on a screen like we had yeah. to do that simultaneously and both of them had a diminished experience because of it so yeah. I, I think that's where the challenge is when you think you can merge the two um but you're right individually there were some kids who thrived with remote Th- education David,
1: that's something i never really understood i never really understood like for me hybrid meant i'm coming to school maybe two or three times a week and then i'm virtual the other two, three times a week, but with the same students. But I found out that some people's definition of hybrid is very different. <laughs> yeah. Where there is exactly what you describe: some kids physically in the classroom, some kids watching you teach, and you know, I think that's a scenario where nobody wins.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that's part of the challenge of when we have these discussions is we're not all talking about the same thing, right? You know, and um, the hybrid that you described that would be perfectly fine now it's a little extra work because you have to have, you know, concurrent sets of lesson plans for the students who are remote and accessing virtually and the students who are face-to-face because you interact with them differently and not that one's better than the other, they're just different and you can't have the same plan for both. And when you try and do it simultaneously, there's no plan that works.
1: Yeah. But I, but I think the bigger, I think the bigger thing here is I think school choice is a really important thing. And I mean, I think, I think school choice can obviously manifest itself in many ways. I mean, we can have the voucher discussion, <laughs> you know, should should we be having school vouchers and let, letting students take a voucher or a check and choose the you know, go to the school of their choosing. Um, but I think in many respects, I think, virtual education has opened it up like why does chemistry class need to be at nine o'clock on Tuesdays in this physical location right why can't I learn at my own pace or why can't I learn virtually or why can't I do something you know some sort of you know VR lab or whatever the case is um and why can't I consult with my teacher and and write an email and all these different types of things again probably not for everyone, probably for less than 10% of students out there, but I think there are students that would thrive in that kind of environment. And uh, I'll be honest with you, I think for as much as I think students are needing more support than ever these days, emotionally, academically, socially, I think we're also kind of having some students essentially wither away in schools and they're so bright and motivated. And by not letting them kind of fly and just kind of holding their reins down, I think we're doing harm too.
0: Yeah, there, there's definitely, um, we view differentiation, uh, I, in my opinion, incorrectly, right? Mm-hmm. So we look at it as, you know, um, Different opportunities for different students, and here are the students who can, here are the students who can't. And, um, you know, we create these structures around it. Where, um, you know, a few years back, I actually changed my approach to where everything I do is low floor, high ceiling. So the kids who can fly will fly, right? And the kids who need support, right? I can support them. So, you know, um, but you talk about education being disrupted. It hasn't been. I thought that you know, March 2020. I was like, all right, here's the turning point. You know, we had to rip the bandaid off and pivot, and everything that people thought worked prior to March 2020 right. that they realized, oh, wait a second, Th- this isn't working. We we could have reinvented school. Everybody talked about reimagining school, coming back mm-hmm. better, and you know, we're almost two years into this and. We're looking to do the same things we did before that you said held, held students back.
1: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I, I do think that 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 is largely the case. I think we're largely back to. "Quote unquote," the way things are, albeit with maybe a few more masks and you know some social <laughs> distancing and mitigation efforts, mitigation things in place. But you know, what about our pedagogy really has changed? What about kind of the structure of school has really changed? And I, I really boil this down to, and, and and I mean, I'm not losing hope. I mean, I'm optimistic. Um, I think you know the seed has been planted. Let's say that. Um, and I think it's up for up to educators like you and me to continue having these types of conversations um, and continue continuing to try to find you know strategies that work for kids and, and, and communities. But I will say this: I think the bigger issue for me is who is the customer of education, right? And I think you know I think traditionally you would say. Well, the customer of education is, of course, the student, right? Because the student is the <laughs> one that ends up with, you know, the learning experience. And in some cases, you might say the, the parents are the customer of education. But I actually think in the United States, the customer of education is the government, <laughs> right? I mean, if you if, if you think about it, I mean, textbook companies are selling to legislatures, Right. They're selling to legislatures and we're talking about millions and millions of dollars of of contracts. And, you know, when we talk about um, testing. yeah, when we talk about testing, when we talk about apps, um, we're usually talking about enterprise sales. They'll sell it like district wide, and they'll 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 you know they'll they'll purport it as a district level solution that has kind of individualized characteristics. And so, the you know the customer is ultimately the government, and I think that is why we have a lack of innovation in education. That's my theory, um, because I think that. There's a lack of competition when you know you and I don't have to quote unquote you know we're colleagues. I don't want to compete, but I want to compete in terms of I want my students to do the best. I want to be able to experiment with different strategies, and I want to be unleashed. Um, and when I know the district comes around and says well you have to do x y and z and you have to do this lesson and you have to use these materials um and this is the structure that you have to kind of be in i mean certainly we understand there has to be some level of structure in place but when they do that kind of stuff then that really i think just kind of quashes innovation and i think that kind of quashes kind of the 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 teacher spirit that that kind of wants to go out there Um, and so i think the the whole issue of who is the customer of education is kind of the main issue Um, and i think that begets other types of issues related to merit pay with you know teachers being respected um you know teacher salary and compensation um i think we're looking at the wrong thing i think we're looking at the wrong thing i think we need to be looking at who is the customer of education which is why i believe such so strongly in school choice
0: so it, this is a, a sentiment that's on social media, and there there are a lot of people who are unhappy with education. They're feeling burnt out. But you mentioned optimism, and I think we we don't need toxic positivity, but we do need optimism. We need direction. So where is your optimism coming from? And you know what should we be focusing on moving forward?
1: Well, I mean, I I think there's yeah I don't think I think there's ever been ever. A more exciting time in education to be honest with you i mean that's probably number one um i think there is a lot of reason to be hopeful about education um And I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're close to being there, but I think we're beginning. Like I said, I think the seed has been planted. I mean, I think, you know, like one issue, I think education is inherently inflationary. I mean, costs continue to rise. The, The, you know, government is the, government is like the customer, but I think we are in a situation where we actually have more learning materials and websites and articles and all this kind of other stuff than we ever had before. And I think we will reach an inflection point where education will start to become deflationary. And I think that's what we want. And I think that's very, very exciting. Um, I think online education um, is something that we talked about. I mean, we've already talked about in this podcast about, you know, I think there's a lot of excitement about it. You know, I, you know, let's not think about online education in terms of the band-aid of 2020, but in terms of like, let's really think about who this works for and how to make it better. Um, I think more and more you're beginning to get technological platforms and technology apps that are very, very adaptive, right? And so I think that is going to unleash this, you know, and I think that's going to really unleash teachers as great facilitators. Um, and I, and I think when you have this, these adaptive learning platforms, um, and I think, I think there's a really, I think there's some really interesting conversations right now happening. I mean, I think, you know, the issue of free community college, I think this is a wonderful conversation to have, you know, and not because, you know, yes, you know, education should be everyone's fundamental right. But I think this is, this, you know, this, Will create an examination of K twelve. Is K twelve cutting the mustard, or should it really be a de facto K fourteen? Right? <laughs> um, you know what effect is this going to have on elite Ivy League universities or not? Um, will this create any difference between you know good community colleges, quote unquote, and you know less desirable community colleges? And I think there are some really fascinating conversations um, that. Are happening and will happen in education, and I think that's why I'm optimistic. Um, I will say that, um, and I and I don't mean any disrespect to teachers because I know that they were working really, really hard. But I think that um, you know, I think teachers work really, really hard. But I do think that you know, it's it's a tough situation for them to be in, but. You know, I I wish we would, I wish we would spend a little bit more time, kind of just understanding the circumstance that we're in, doing the best that we can. Um, I think you know we're always exhausted. There's always something on the horizon, and I think that sometimes I see too many teachers wallow in that, or kind of go through that po- toxic, po- toxic positivity that you're referring to. And I think, you know, maybe it's not optimism, but it's more pragmatism, you know, like what do we need to do and how do we need to do it? And and let's do it now.
0: Yeah. And, and look, I I share that optimism with you. I've seen a lot of good things and it's not things that we could typically measure. And, um, you know, I, I've seen the the time management, and I've seen the resourcefulness and all of those things that you want students to acquire, but I'm somebody who was looking for that before, Yeah, you know, and I think we have to move away from the, the model of school and just look for things that we haven't typically measured in order for your optimism to come to fruition.
1: Yeah. And I think we need to, you know, in education, we're full of anecdotes, right? I mean, we're full of, you know, I can tell you about that student or I can tell you about, you know, that situation. And I think, you know, this is a fault of, you know, policymakers and educational leaders of really systematizing this information and really putting all of these inputs together and saying, okay, what is the data telling us? What is the data, you know, what is data, the data telling us about what's working in education and what's not? And let's really think about making some pretty whole, you know, pretty large scale changes. Um, and, and, you know, I'm sad to say it's, it's sad to see that, you know, the large majority of the you know, policymakers and educational leaders kind of just want to go back to the status quo.
0: So t- touching on, um, you know, data and research, that's something that you're involved in as well. Yeah. Right. So you do research um, for a university. So mm-hmm. um What are you researching? And what have you seen in that research?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I work at the University of Central Florida, um, at the Center for Community Schools. Um, So, you know, we, our center works with, you know, close to 30, um, close, close to 30 schools across the state of Florida, and um, we receive funding from the Florida legislature. And so you know, these are schools that generally are high need schools. And so you know, funding comes in to kind of implement, you know, aspects of community schools. So, in other words, um, what are their different pillars? There's, you know, expanded learning, there's healthcare, um, you know, there's a healthcare pillar. So, the idea is if we're, a, you know, as an example, um, we're able to use funding and open a telehealth kiosk, or we're able to go into a school and, we're able to get, you know, donations and, and and you know have food drives for families, or we're able to have parent education courses, or we're able to offer, you know, an after-school math remedial program. You know, the question then becomes: by utilizing these resources and offering supports, you know, whether it's social, emotional, behavioral, whether it's academic, are the kids better off for it? Are we seeing better graduation rates? Are we seeing better standardized test results? Are we seeing better attendance? Are we seeing less behavioral incidents? Um, and so this is kind of what I do in terms of, you know, my professional job in terms of researching, you know, so we look at some of the inputs, we look at some of the outputs, we look at some of the outcomes. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my job, that's what we do.
0: And what have you been seeing, or is it too early to, to kind of make any assumptions?
1: Um, I think in general, you know, we can we can look at some comparison sites. We can see some, you know, generally higher graduation rates in some of the community schools versus non-community schools. Um, you know, I think people generally say that um, academics is a lagging indicator. Um, we can certainly see um, increased metrics with regards to kind of satisfaction, um, school climate surveys, um, less behavioral incidents, things of that nature. Um I will say, you know, this is a little bit of the data geek in me and in, in, in this, you know, for, for folks who are listening, the holy grail of, you know, really measuring academic performance and measuring, you know, these educational initiatives is student level data. That is kind of the holy grail. Um, in other words, you know, I, you could tell me that, you know, the graduation of this school is you know, 80% and, you know, this other school is 85%, great. But really what you want to be able to do is you want to be able to A, disaggregate the information, right? So, you know, how are, you know, males versus females doing or you know boys versus girls and how are different ethnic subgroups doing? Um, But then you also want to do in the case of community schools, you want to say, hey, look, these students received some sort of behavioral or emotional support And these students receive some sort of remedial support. So if I have student level data connecting the fact that they received the support and then what their grades are or what their standardized test scores are or what their graduation rates are, then that is really like the holy grail because you can really begin to make a one-to-one connection. And then when you work with 30 schools, like, you know, across the state, like we do, or 30 some odd schools, then I think that can be very, very powerful. Um, The issue is that a lot of school districts are understandably pretty protective of their data, right? We've got, you know, things like FERPA and HIPAA. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have to go, you know, the the unsexy part of, you know, what I do is talking to a lot of school districts and trying to engage in data sharing agreements with them, right? Um, can we get student level data? How can we get student level data? How can we get that to flow at scale? Um, it's one, you know, you don't, the last thing you want to be doing with thousands of students is going through an Excel spreadsheet, you know, manually. Um, so you've got to find out how that data flows. And so, you know, to, to set that up is kind of what we're doing right now. Um, although we've already set it up for a few districts and I think the results are, you know, they're pretty promising.
0: Awesome. All right. So how can people connect with you?
1: Well, you can go to School Rubric and tell you that um, we've got our website, schoolrubric.org, and you can go to Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, all those different things. Um, I'm on Twitter, Ting Wallace, I guess. Um, I usually try to be behind the scenes, if as I'm sure you've noticed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't really make too many appearances on podcasts or put myself out there. Um, I guess maybe that's a little bit more of a New Year's resolution. And obviously you reached out, so I'm appreciative of um of the opportunity to, to, to share some of my thoughts.
0: All right, great. Well, thank you for joining me.
1: All right. Thanks, David. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening. I look forward to hearing your feedback. For more resources, visit www.reimagineschools.com or reach out to me on Twitter at David